We're in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. The title of the sermon is power, The Power of Prayer. Uh, the title of our series as a whole is Steadfast Faith for Trying Times. This section of Scripture, in just these few verses, has the word prayer mentioned seven times. So what do you think we're talking about today? Prayer. Yeah, I would be hijacking the text to talk about anything else other than prayer with that word mentioned seven times in these verses 13 through 18. It is closely connected to verses 7 through 11. Now, you'll remember a couple weeks ago, we walked through verses 7 through 11 on patience. The connections between these two is the same noun, suffering, occurs in a verb form, suffering, in chapter 5, verse 13, that was in chapter 5, verse 10. Both of these talk about how we can respond to hard times, to suffering. One talks about patience in 7 through 11. The next one talks about prayer in 13 through 18. Both of them use the phrase in the name of the Lord. The prophet spoke in the name of the Lord. In this chapter we're going to look at today, the verses, the elders will pray in the name of the Lord. Both end with Old Testament examples. 7 through 11 ended with Job, a great example of patience. This section ends with Elijah, a great example of the power of prayer. And so you see there are connections between these two. In other words, James in his book, which is on steadfast faith through trying times. It's about suffering. It's about perseverance. It's about patience. He ends this and says, how do you make it through suffering? How do you make it through those hard times? How do you make it through those days where you just don't know what you're going to do next? Through those seasons of life that seem like they're dry, in the end of his book, he's coming around and he's saying, here are two things. One, you have patience. You trust God and you have patience. And two, you pray. You experience the power of prayer. So that's the one-two punch to knock out suffering in your life. Patience and prayer. And let's be honest, we're not great at either one of them. We are an impatient people. If you're anything like me, you are an impatient group of people. And if you're anything like me, you're not a pro at prayer. I think about people like Martin Luther who said, I've got a really busy day, so I need to get up early so I can pray for three hours before I start it. And I think to myself, Lord, I'm not even close to that point. How, how in the world am I going to preach a text like this? Well, it's the text that's going to be talking to you, not me. And so we listen to James. Now, is James a person that we should listen to on prayer? If you remember back to the beginning of the fall semester... I told you that James was called old camel knees. Remember that? Let me read you a quote out of Eusebius. Here's a quote. He used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking for forgiveness. So often did he pray that he was referred to as old camel knees because he developed knots on his knees from his long seasons of prayer. From his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. Today we hear from Jesus' half-brother, words inspired by the Holy Spirit intended for his audience and for us as we read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Dear Lord, today, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, so that we may recognize the power of prayer and live it out in our lives for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. The word prayer, seven times in verses 13 through 18. We begin first looking at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? What do you do? You let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises or offer through song a prayer to God. Prayer in its most generic form is speaking to God. I remember my son asking me, Dad, what, what is it to pray? I don't know how to pray. He would hear us pray, but I don't, I don't know how to pray. And I would tell him, son, it's just like talking to God. You talk to God like he's your best friend, but I don't know what to say, Dad. You talk to him like you talk to me. You just talk to him as though he's someone you know. Prayer in its most generic form is simply speaking with God. And sometimes we feel awkward because we have not had a long enough prayer life to understand that when we pray, God often changes our will, changes our thoughts, changes our minds as we bend our will toward His will. It should be like a two-way conversation between friends. Prayer can consist of a request for material blessings, spiritual or physical help, intercession for others, repentance of wrongdoings, thanksgiving to God for all that he's done, adoration because we serve and worship a majestic God, praise to him because he is worthy. Difficult circumstances may change the urgency of our prayer. Something happens quickly, a friend is, is in need, we may go to the Lord with a sense of, Lord, I need this and I need it quickly, and there's an urgency to our prayer. For some other prayers, we pray for years before things happen. We pray for the salvation of family members or friends in a persistent prayer, not, that, not because we lack faith, but because we persistently come asking and requesting of God over and over again, God, draw this person to salvation. God, help to mold me the way you would make me to be. God, help me to overcome the sin struggles that are in my life. And those struggles shouldn't be the same struggle that you had 10 years ago, but you will always struggle with that sinful nature in this life. There are some prayers that are long, persistent prayers that we constantly go to God with. But prayer should never be viewed as a formula. It's not that we just recite the same thing over and over and over again. And we expect that formula to result in some magical end result. Prayer should also never be viewed as the genie in the bottle. Lord, I'm not going to pray to you. I never pray to you. I, I, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to keep you in my back pocket just in case I get in trouble. And then those moments when I get in trouble, I'm going to try to make a deal with God. God, if you will, then I will. And that's not how prayer works. And that's not how God works. God is not the genie in the bottle. God is not the spare tire. God is the steering wheel. And so we must recognize and understand that God should not be our last resort, but that God and prayer should be our first thought. This verse tells us in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Sing praises. So it beckons in my mind this question. 
James in his book has laid out all of these things for us to test genuine faith versus false faith. He has laid out these things for us to help us grow to spiritually mature followers of Christ. So you wanna give yourself the test. Am I a mature follower of Christ? Do I have genuine faith or false faith? Do I have the faith that returns in works of doing good deeds to God because I want to? Or do I have a faith that's like the demons who believe and tremble, but they're still not saved? Where is my faith? Is it mature? And one of the questions you can ask yourself is what happens when suffering comes upon me? Is my first thought in suffering to go to God? When something happens, is it my first instinct to say, Lord, I need to talk to you about this. I need to pray about this because we recognize that God is the one that can fix it. Or is your first thought to go to somebody else? If your first thought is to go to somebody else, then it's perhaps you think somebody else can do more for you than God can do for you. And that demonstrates an immature faith. A mature faith recognizes that God can do more in one second than we can do in a lifetime of work and effort. A mature faith doesn't go to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter to rant about suffering in our lives. You see it just as often as I do. Friends from all over the place. Something happens that's bad, the first instinct, I'm gonna tell the entire world about it on the World Wide Web on Facebook. And I think to myself, really? That's what you wanna do? I see people mentioning names of other people who have done things to them and they're going through hard times and I get it and it's hard and we don't like it and it makes us angry. But that's where we go through suffering. Mature believers don't go tell the world about it. They go to God about it. God, what am I missing here? God, what do I need to think about here? And often when we go to God, we recognize that God will calm our hearts, our anger. He'll calm that bitterness. He'll take it away from us. We should go to God. Is that your first thought? I had this, this student that I was mentoring, this was several years back, and, and he would come to me with these issues. It was, it was dating, it was engagement time, he was going through some stuff, and he came to me, and when he would come to me, I began asking him this question every single time he came to me, have you prayed about it yet? It was almost as if he thought he could come and ask the question, and that was the best thing he could do anytime something happened. So the first question was, have you prayed about it yet? Not that I didn't want to talk to him. I loved him, but I wanted him to go to God first and not to somebody else. And I want you to go to God first, not to somebody else, because God can help you more than anybody else can help you. God will always be there. God will always understand every detail. God will know the ins and outs of your heart better than anybody else will. God is the one that has the answers. And James here is saying, when you suffer, brothers and sisters, and you will suffer, go to God, pray. How did you do on the test? Did you do well? Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Well, what do you do when everything's good? When you're happy. When everything's just right. The tests are over, and it's Friday. And you've got a good weekend coming up. When you're joyful, when you're cheerful, James says, sing praise. That's what we should do. We should sing praise. This is important, because this tells me that we have a God for all seasons. We have a God that we should praise when things go well, and we have a God that we can go to when things go badly. When we focus on ourselves and things go badly, we turn into doubts and depression. When we focus on ourselves and things go good, we turn into pridefulness and arrogance about how great we are, or perhaps we turn into laziness and complacency. But when we're focused on God and not on ourselves, when things go bad, we pray, and it drives us closer to God, and it can be good for our spiritual life when suffering happens to us because we don't wait 
waste our suffering. We use it in a different way than the world by digging deep into the word and going to God. And there's a depth that comes that helps us walk through troubled times unshaken because we've been there. When things go good, we don't get prideful. We don't get arrogant. We don't think it's all about us. We go to God and we praise him for the blessings in life. We give him glory. We are a mirror that reflects all praise and glory up to God and refuses to take it for ourselves. This is what James is saying. Brothers and sisters, you have a God that is with you in the hard times. He is blessing you in the good times. He is worthy of your prayers. He is worthy of your praise. And so we should come to him at all times for he is a God for all seasons. Prayer is not natural. Our culture runs against it in at least three ways. We are taught to be independent. Do it on your own. Pull up your bootstraps. Rugged individualism of the American society. And prayer says, I'm dependent on God. And that's hard. It's harder for some of us than it is for others. But that's hard. For me to come and confess before God, God, I I can't do this. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the ability. I don't know what to do next, God. I need your help. That is a humility. That is a humbling aspect that I have to get on my knees before Almighty God and say to him, I can't do this. And our culture does not encourage that philosophy. Second, we are taught to be busy and efficient. We're taught to be busy because if you ask anybody, how are you? The response usually is, I'm busy. I'm too busy. I have too much work to do. Because for some reason, we think having too much work to do is a sign of success. If your life is so busy that you're always doing something, you kind of think that's successful. If you were to say to somebody, I don't have anything to do, I'm just sitting around. You might indicate to them that you're not that important or that popular or that busy. And so we're often way too busy. And we're way too efficient. In fact, the world would look at us and say, you get down on your knees and you pray to a God and you take time out of the schedule where you could be more productive to do that. And as they look at us, they might think, that's crazy. That is inefficient. You could get more stuff done if you just wouldn't do that. But they don't see in God's economy that God can do more and we do more when we pray to God and when we start our day in prayer to God than we do when we start it in our own strength and try to accomplish it in our own way. The culture runs against this. The culture runs against us in other ways. We have radios in our cars that will play music. We have phones that can play any number of our favorite songs if we put our earbuds in. We watch television. We watch Netflix. We have sporting events to go to. We fill our minds with so much that we rarely ever stop to meditate and listen to what God may be saying to us. Culture says, stay busy. Keep your mind full. Prayer says pause. Anybody in the room have a snow globe? Just a few. A few more of you. you know, you've seen the snow globe, right? When you see a snow globe, you shake it up, and the snow or whatever's inside fills the globe. It's busy. It's active. It's hard to see. Society kind of wants our lives to be that busy. Some of your lives might actually look like this. But do you notice, the longer you wait, it begins to settle. You begin to notice details that you might have missed before. 
a peacefulness begins to arise. As things begin to calm. Prayer is the settling of the snow globe of your spiritual life. When we pray, we allow the busyness that clouds our viewing, that clouds our thoughts, that clouds our minds to settle. And as it settles and as it slowly goes down, we begin to think more clearly. We begin to evaluate life more accurately. We begin to understand in a better way. Prayer allows us to hit the time out, to call the pause, to allow things to settle so that we can see more clearly. Do you allow prayer to settle your spiritual life? Uh, when things are going good, praise. Praise, this word solo. It's a verb which actually means to pluck or play a stringed instrument or to sing with the accompaniment of a harp. We should sing when we're happy. We should sing when we're cheerful. We should offer praise to God like we do here in chapel. We should sing songs that are theologically accurate and rich and deep. We shouldn't sing songs that have little meaning, even if the tune might be nice. We should sing songs that all of us can sing so that we can be encouraged by the voices of fellow worshipers. There's a place and a time to listen to those who have great performances, but when we come together to sing, it's congregational worship. We should not focus our worship horizontally, but we should focus our worship vertically. We should focus our worship on God in theologically accurate, rich terms as we sing together and listen to others and are encouraging. And this is one of the things I love so much about chapel at Cedarville is listening to all of you sing from your heart, to sing loud, to sing praise, to be excited about worshiping God. And James here encourages this. He moves in verse 14 to a controversial section. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. These verses have multiple controversial interpretations. This is where the Catholic tradition of extreme unction or last rites comes from. In the Catholic tradition, you would prepare somebody for death by anointing them with oil and praying over them. It comes from this particular text, but you can see reading through the text here as you continue on that James has in mind tough times, suffering, and perseverance through that so that you will be made well. He's not preparing someone for death. He's not telling of a last rite or something of that nature. He's talking about being made well. Some see in this passage an interpretation guaranteeing physical healing. If your faith is strong enough, if you have the prayer of faith, then you will be healed. I do not believe this is the right interpretation of this passage for multiple reasons, but one of them is that as you read this text, as you look at verses 14, you call for the elders, and the elders pray over them. In verse 15, the prayer of faith is the prayer of the elders. It's not the prayer of the sick person, and I believe this interpretation does great harm as you have those who want to be healed from various disabilities, who want to be healed from sicknesses, and they pray, and they think their faith is the reason that they're not being healed, but we understand from looking at the New Testament, from reading the New Testament, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He requested that God remove it from him through Three times, and God left it in there so that he would be drawn closer to God. Paul's faith was not weak. You remember that Paul talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, to Trophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20, to Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25, talked about their infirmities, their weakness, their sickness. Their faith was not weak. There is no room in this passage of Scripture for prosperity theology that guarantees healing if your faith is strong enough. It's the faith of the elders. 
not the faith of the sick person. In fact, this passage gives us three steps. I'm not going to sidetrack too much on the different issues, but I do want to lay out these different steps. Some would even say this passage is about being weak in the faith, not really sick because of the Greek words that are used here. And that fits really well with the last two verses of bringing someone back. But the main point of this overall passage, again, is about prayer seven times in verses 13 through 18. Here are the three steps that you see in verse 14. Are you sick? Call the elders. So the sick person first calls for the elders. The elders are the leaders of the church. The church, the word used here is ecclesia. It's not synagogue. He's not pointing back to the Jewish synagogue. He's pointing to the ecclesia. The ecclesia, meaning literally the called out ones, those who are gathered. It is your church assembly. And here I must insert that Cedarville Chapel is not church. Be involved in a church. When you graduate from here, join a local church near where God plants you. Make sure that you are a member of a church and that you are a productive member of a church, that you are not someone who just goes with consumerism in mind, but you go wanting to be a producer of a local church. If you're not a part of the local church and something happens, what elders do you call? Who knows you? Who's encouraging you in the faith? Here, the sick person calls the elders, the leaders of the local church. Now notice this. He doesn't call the person with the gift of healing from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but he calls for the elders of the church. This is not a healing service. The elders come probably in a local home at that point or probably in private, and the elders pray over him. Now, over him could have many different things. It could be that he's so sick, he's laying on a bed, he can't get up, so the elders are then praying over him, or so weak that it's praying over, as you would imagine in a hospital situation, where you lean over and you grasp the hand of someone who is sick and you pray over them, literally. It could be that the person is kneeling, as you would see some churches practice when they would bring somebody to the front and have them kneel, and they would place hands on them, and so it's praying over them. It could be metaphorically that you are covering them with prayers. It's not specifically laid out here, but they pray over them. And it says here when they pray over them that then they will anoint him with oil. What does that mean? Some commentators say that there's medicinal purposes in oil. The parable of the Good Samaritan, even though it's a story, Jesus says there they used oil to cover the wounds. And so some medicinal purposes there could be involved. Others say that it's symbolic. It's a measure of the Holy Spirit anointing with oil or something of that nature. So it is a symbolic. Others say that it's just oil used in massage, that you are just massaging a person, that you are just helping them in order to help them feel better. All of this is done in the name of the Lord. It's the name of the Lord that allows healing when it's God's will, that allows things to happen. The prayer of faith, which is mentioned, is not a faith that guarantees healing. It's a prayer that says God's will be done. It's no coincidence that in this chapel service, we've had Dr. Lee preach on the prayer of Jesus in the garden out of Matthew. We've had Sam Albury preach in Luke on Jesus's prayer. We've had others talk about Jesus's prayer and his prayer life. It's no coincidence that the Lord prayer says, thy will be done on heaven as it is in earth, that Jesus prayed in the garden and he prayed more fervently the more the trials came. And he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. The prayer of faith is a prayer that says, Lord, your will be done. We trust in you. You are a good God. You are a God that we can trust and that we serve. And so a prayer of faith does not guarantee healing. We know 
that from Scripture. We know that all of the apostles except John died a martyr's death, and John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Prosperity theology is not in the New Testament. In the New Testament is take up your cross and follow me. The New Testament faith is a faith that is the faith of the martyrs. It is a faith that says I am willing to die for my king. It's not a faith that says my king should make my life better on this earth. It's a faith that lives for the next. It's a faith that says I know there's going to be hard times and deep waters, and I'm okay with that because my God is worthy. And God, whatever you call me to, I will not back away. I will not stand down. For you are my king, and I will serve you alone. That's the faith we have to have. Verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous man has great power. I want to spend a little bit of time here. Confess to one another. It's mentioned here in the New Testament. How do we do confession? I think a good rule of thumb is that confession is as wide as the sin. When we sin publicly, when we make a mistake publicly, it's appropriate for us to confess that sin publicly, openly. When we sin privately, I think sin requires true confession to God and true confession to the person that we have offended privately, not publicly. When we sin secretly, nobody else knows about it. Nobody else is affected by it. We still must make confession to God, for God knows we have sinned against God. But then no one else needs to know about those particular sins in an act of confession. So confession should be to the person or the people against whom we have sinned and from whom we need forgiveness. Now, there's another thing I see here. How many of you wash your own clothes? Is that the majority of you? How many of you take clothes home every weekend or every other weekend so somebody else can wash them? Nobody's going to admit to that, right? Okay, good job. Don't admit to that. Well done. What if you were to take all of your dirty clothes and you would be embarrassed about how dirty they are, but maybe about how bad they smell, and so you would take one long sleeve shirt or sweatshirt, you would bundle them all up inside, you would take them and tie it really tight so that you just had a ball all tied up in the shirt, and you were to take that ball and you were to put that ball in the washing machine. What would happen to those clothes? Would they be clean? So some of you have tried that and you know this already, right? (laughs) They wouldn't be clean, would they? How many of you have ever gone on a mud run or played flag football in the mud or backyard football in the mud and you had socks on afterwards that used to be white and now they are brown and there is dirt just clogged all in them? Has anybody been in that particular scenario? And when you take those socks off, you kind of flip them inside out so that the mud and dirt doesn't get everywhere. Now what happens if you take that sock still flipped inside out with all the mud and dirt on the inside and you put it into the washing machine? Does it come clean? You take it out and it's still dirty, right? I had to learn this lesson the hard way. It's still dirty. It looks like it's never been washed because it was in such bad shape beforehand. There's an issue here that I think we see of making sure that we expose the dirt and the water to the detergent so that the dirt with the water and the detergent will come clean. Now, if you have a sin in your life or if you have sins in your life and you're not willing to confess those sins to others, but you want to keep those sins to yourself, how is it that you're ever going to overcome those sins without an accountability partner, without someone that's a mentor, without confessing those to the people you need to confess them to? The devil wants you to keep your sin to yourself. He wants you never to expose your sin. He wants it never to be cleansed and removed. 
But spiritual maturity recognizes that we are all sinners. We all have a sinful nature. We all need forgiveness. And we come forward in confession to others and say, pray for me on this. I have a struggle here. I need help here. I need somebody to walk alongside me. Your RAs, your RDs, those in the counseling area, the student life, your faculty, those in the Christian ministry area. Do you go to them and confess, I need help. I need prayer. I need you to walk with me through this. Sin wants you alone. Sin wants you isolated. Sin wants you to be all by yourself and to feel that way. Sin does not want you to confess and have help and have prayer and have encouragement and have guidance. The more alone, the more destructive its power. The more hidden, the longer its consequences. The Lord does not tell you to hide your sin. The Lord does not tell you to cover up your sin. The Lord does not tell you to keep your sin to yourself. Those thoughts come from the evil one. Confession pulls down barriers. Confession destroys pride. Confession encourages humility. Confession disintegrates the hypocrisy of double-mindedness. Confession brings the humiliation and the weight of our sin upon our shoulders. It is good for our soul to confess our sins to one another. And here James emphasizes that. Application time. Are you confessing your sins or are you hiding them? Are you in isolation? Are you struggling by yourself? Are you listening to your heavenly father or the father of all lies? The question here has to arise, does sin make us sick? 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul talks about it in connotation of the Lord's Supper and says that some of you are sick and weak and ill and some have died. So yes, sin can make us sick, but sin doesn't always make us sick. Every illness is not a result of sin. But here it encourages confession one to another. It encourages a time of forgiveness. And then it comes to a verse that has fascinated me for many years. The prayers of a righteous person has great power in its working. Have you ever read this verse and thought, well, okay, you need to go ask a righteous person to pray for you because I'm still struggling with issues? Have you ever thought this verse is not talking about me? But here what this verse says is the prayer of a righteous person. And then it turns around and it talks about Elijah. And what does it emphasize about Elijah? Not his great miracles, although it's there, but it emphasizes about Elijah, a man who has a nature like ours. Why does James talk about Elijah having a nature like ours. Because James is telling us the prayers of the righteous. Who are the righteous? The righteous are not those who are perfect, for that's none of us. The righteous are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Those are the righteous who have been made righteous in Christ. Your prayers as a saved person, your prayers as a righteous person by the blood of Jesus and his righteousness means you have a power beyond your imagination through prayer. Elijah, He had a nature just like ours. He had a sin nature. He struggled just like we did. You read his life. He would do something amazing and then he would go hide and be in depression because of it. He would do something incredible and then he would run away from somebody that he shouldn't have run away from. He had his highs and he had his lows. And what the devil wants you to think is that you're not righteous. You can't pray. Your prayers have no effect. And what James is saying to you is that the prayers of a saved person, they availeth much. They have great power when they are working out. You have the power of prayer. Don't forget about it. Don't overlook it. Don't underestimate it. The power of prayer is ours. Let's use it. We have the opportunity to pray. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours, a sinful man, not a perfect man, prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. He prayed again 
And the heavens came and gave rain. Elijah, his name appears nine times in Matthew, nine in Mark, eight in Luke, two in John, once in Romans and James. He was so well known that when Jesus Christ cried out, Eli, Eli, upon the cross, some thought he was calling for Elijah, recorded in Matthew 27, verse 47. Jesus in Luke 4, 25 referenced this three and a half years as well. Elijah in his day in 1 Kings 18, 21 was the one who challenged all double-mindedness when he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And he prayed and called down fire from heaven. Think about the power of prayer in the Old Testament. Joshua prayed and the sun stood still. Samson called out to the Lord and his strength returned and he pulled down the temple upon them all. Elijah prayed and fire came from heaven. Elijah later prayed and the widow's son was raised from death. Elisha prayed and the Lord opened the eyes of a young man to see the chariots of fire on the hills. The armies came down. Elisha prayed again and he blinded the armies. The power of prayer has unlocked for Daniel and Joseph the interpretation of dreams. It has quenched the fires of the fiery furnace. It has closed the mouths of the lions. It has expelled demons. It has caused the blind to see and the lame to walk. And this prayer, this power is a power that we all have access to as we pray to God. Not that he would be required to perform a miracle, but that is the power of prayer that God can do anything God chooses to do. Now in our lives, every day, the power of prayer It's the power to keep me from getting angry and sinning as I shouldn't. It's the power to help me be faithful and not to have doubts. It's the power to help me read my Bible as I should and learn from the text of Scripture to apply it to my life. It's the power to help me treat one another in the way I should. It's the power to help me be a good husband and a good father. It's the power to help me represent Christ well throughout the day. And that power is just as important in your daily life. Start every day with prayer. I've got some quotes for you here in closing. First quotes from Corey Ten Boom. Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is it driving your life or is it something that's in the trunk just in case you need it? Any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. Corey Ten Boom. Any prayer that you're not willing to pray about, don't talk about it. If an issue is so small, you're not going to take it to God, it's not really an issue. It's not a burden in your life if you're not going to pray about it. If you only pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. Test time. Do you only pray when you're in trouble? You're in trouble. When life is too hard to stand... Neil. James says it this way. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The saint who advances on his knees never retreats. Jim Elliot. Far too often we run out on our own path and recognize we've run out the wrong way. But the saint who advances on their knees never retreats. Prayers may not remove the trials, but prayers can transform them. God's no genie in a bottle. He is not required to answer your prayers, to conform to your will, to do what you want Him to do. We are to conform to His. He may not remove your suffering in this life, but He can use it, and He can use it for your good and for His glory. 
Prayer should not demand that God accomplish my will, but that I bend my will to accomplish His. You know what I found? Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. And you know what James shows us? Prayer follows patience because patient prayer will minister to our souls. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. If we want to see a mighty movement of God, pray. If you want to grow in your personal life, pray. If you want to make it through suffering, pray. If you want to be happy in the good times, pray through praise and song to God. Whatever happens, pray. Oh God, far too often, we are too casual about our prayers. God, far too often, we do treat you like a genie in the bottle or a spare tire in the trunk. God, forgive us. God, help us to be quick to confess our sins before others and before you. God, help us to be quick to turn to you. May you be our first thought in the morning and our last thought at night. May we open our day with you. May we close our day with you. You are our best thoughts by day or by night. Lord, may we think and pray to you without ceasing, ever in prayer. Lord, help us in our weakness to become strong through prayer to you. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. And you are dismissed.